um, an open heart to hear what you might say to us. I pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so we start off in John. The word becomes, the word is with God, the word is God. All this stuff happens, and, and there's this light that happens in verse 5, and this light will not be extinguished by the darkness. And, and then there's this guy, his name is John, not John the writer of the gospel, but John the Baptist. And he comes on the scene, and this dude, he's like, he lives in the woods, and he wears animal skins, and he eats bugs. And, and I think that if we had to describe him at this point, maybe Unabomber would be a good term to, to think about this guy. And he's really weird, and he comes, and he, and he proclaims, and he's a witness, and he testifies to this light. See, God's plan is about to leap forward big time with the coming of Jesus. And then we see in verse 9 that the true light is coming in to the world. In our culture, I think we have a difficult time with truth, with 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 something being true. I mean, truth and true, this idea is it could be very scary. It could be messy, it could be painful. It also could be very good and very and very cleansing and very inviting, but there's also this side of truth that that is it it, it could hurt. When I was a kid, um, this is when I was probably my son's age, seven eight years old. We lived in a neighborhood in uh, in Ansonia, and our neighbors had this really old car in the back of their, of their like of the back of their yard. It was beat. It was like I would say from the 40s or 50s. It was just there forever and ever and the seats were all ripped and you know there was the car was so old that you can see the springs and it was like the seats were stuffed with straw. And so me and a couple friends, we decided to think what would happen if we lit a match and put it into the seats. Now, me being the scientist that I was back then, um, somehow I got a hold of the matches and we lit a match and put it into the seats to see what would happen. Like I didn't really know what would happen. And instantaneously, this thing just goes up in flames, whoosh. And so I run to get this dog's water dish and I throw it at the seat. Obviously our experimental controls were, were lacking because this did absolutely nothing. And so this car begins to burn like black smoke, billowing, burning. And this lady runs out of her house, right? And she's like, oh, my gosh. And she grabs all his kids and she moves us away. And we're standing there like, oh. And, and knowing that things aren't going to go good for me right now. And, and I just have this feeling. And she runs up to a telephone pole and she pulls the fire alarm. Because back then, fire alarms were on telephone poles in the public because youth were responsible and they were well behaved. So she pulls this fire alarm. The police come, and the fire department comes, and the fire department. And by this time, the thing is just melting. Okay, this old car in the back of these people's house um, is just melting. And they and they put the fire out like fire departments do. And and um, I don't remember who it was because this is a long time ago. They come up to us kids, and I remember it was like they were huge. And I remember looking up, and they said. Who's responsible for this? And it took me a minute to understand the word responsible, but they were looking for, you know, who did this? Now, my dad always told me when I got in trouble not to lie because lying would just make things worse. But my seven-year-old brain heard, no, 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 all you have to do is tell the truth and you'll just never be in trouble. And so I fessed up, man. I was like, I did it. I got into a lot of trouble. In fact, I've been lying ever since now. No, I'm not kidding. Um, so, so... 
So I remember like, I must have been young because my mom had my arm up here as I was being dragged back to the house. I remember very clearly these words, and you might think, but I remember very clearly, wait till your father gets home. All right? So I told the truth. I got in trouble. And believe me, it all goes blank after that. I don't know if like I had a psychotic episode and I just, I'm, I'm wounded like deeply. I don't even know it yet. But I told the truth and I got in trouble. Sometimes the truth gets you in trouble. Sometimes the truth gets you out of trouble. But the truth is a very interesting concept when it is in the context of spirituality. Because sometimes we believe, well, what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. As long as we're not hurting anybody, truth can be everything. But then truth ends up actually really being nothing because everything is true. Then what's false? And it just gets really strange. It gets really, really surreal. And sometimes we like to base our truth on what we believe. And sometimes that doesn't work either. Because listen, if I'm in a bathtub, right? And, and I'm just lounging around, I'm taking the bath, and my water gets cold, and I decide instead of draining the water out of the bathtub, I'm going to take the hairdryer, plug it in, turn it on, because the hairdryer blows hot air. I'm going to submerge that hairdryer into the water to heat the water. At this point, it doesn't matter what I believe. There's a certain truth that's going to take place. As the current runs through my body, pops the ground fault indicator, and hopefully I live. So even in the context of just because you believe it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. But then we have to consider faith coming in. And where does faith step into belief in truth? And, and so truth can be very messy. Truth can be very difficult. But here's what John says in verse 9. The, not a, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He is speaking about spirituality. He's speaking and he's saying that there is a genuine, true, divine spirituality that is coming into the world. And so we understand that this light to be Jesus Christ. And if we make the claim that Jesus is true, then we have to understand that everything about Jesus is true. C.S. Lewis said what? Either Jesus is a liar, Jesus is a crackpot, or what Jesus said is true. And we have to accept all that he says as truth. But in the context of spiritual things, sometimes truth, it gets watered down. So everything becomes true. So as long as you're not really hurting anybody, then your truth is okay. And my truth is okay. But who's right? Whose truth is true? I mean, can we really believe in one truth about God? I mean, is that really possible? I mean, haven't, haven't there been enough of negative situations around the world that have to do with one God? This group of people believe they have it. This group of people believe they have it. Those people are always fighting. And there's, Isn't there enough problems in the world over this one truth about God? And there is. Let's face it. Let's be honest about it. But, all right, let's, let's look at this this way. <laughs> Let's just look at the big three. Let's look at the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians, okay? If the Jews and the Muslims have it correct that Jesus 
is a prophet and a teacher. If, if they have it right, then we Christians fail in a very serious way to love and worship God the way he really is. In fact, that makes us idolaters because we're worshiping a teacher. But now, if we Christians have it right about Jesus, that Jesus is God, then the Muslims and the Jews fail on a very serious level to love and worship God as he really is. You see, we all can't be right. We all cannot be correct. We have very differences, difference of opinion or faith about who God is. John says that the true light is coming into the world. And our faith tells us that true light is Jesus Christ. I don't mean that you should go out there and all pump up your chest and say, yeah, that's right, we got it right, you're all dumb and you got it wrong. No, but we all cannot be correct. John says the true light is coming into the world. The genuine, the real spirituality is coming into this world and it will give light to everyone. Read the text again. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into this world. Now, a lot of times this text is just plopped out, taken out of there, and it's just used out of its context. You see, we think that this is about universalism. That means that, that Jesus is going to save everyone, no matter what you believe, no matter the truth that you embrace. This is not what the text is saying at all. In fact, it's, 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 it's not what John is getting to at all. See, there's this, there's this external illumination of the light. There's this revelation of who Jesus is. And this revelation of the light gives all people the opportunity to respond to that light. And in that response, there's an internal illumination of the soul that takes place. Things change. This is not about everyone being in. Listen, Jesus says that I am the truth and the life. Here's what I do believe about that statement, though. I do not believe for a minute that we understand fully all the ways that Jesus is the way. When a baby dies, I say the baby goes to heaven. Never had a chance to say the prayer. Never had a chance to accept Jesus. Someone who, who has a, um, a mental handicap, a special needs child. At what level is there the cutoff point where they're in or they're out? I don't know. But I know that Jesus is the way. And I don't claim to understand all of the ways that Jesus is the way. But Jesus on earth comes into the world. He's walking, he's talking, he's teaching, he's living, he's doing miracles, gives people the opportunity to respond to those things. And when they respond to the external illumination of who Jesus is, the soul is lit inside and the spirit awakens and becomes alive. Watch this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world... And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So here is Jesus. He's moving around in the world. He's living in the world. He's, he's part of his creation. This thing that Jesus has created was created through him. This thing that Jesus um, is, that was created through him, he holds it all together. He holds it all in place. And even the man-made stuff, Jesus has allowed to be created through him. And he has come to move through his creation to move around in it, living and breathing and talking and doing miracles and saying, no, 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 don't do that. Come follow me this way. And his creation rejects him. They don't recognize him doing anything. It'd be like this, okay? This might be a really lame um, example, but it's all I got, so you're gonna have to live with it. So um, Kobe Bryant, LA Lakers. Okay, say they're in the finals, right? And Kobe gets on the phone and he says, yo, hey, why don't you come out to the finals, man? I got courtside seats. I'll set you all up. And so they're playing against, I don't know, Cheshire High School. And so, and they win, right? The, the Lakers win and it's a hundred to like 20. And Kobe, he makes 98 points out of that hundred and he's got 27 and a half rebounds and he's got his own assist he's got like 13 assists that he assisted himself it's just an amazing orchestration of basketball ism is that a word i'm gonna use it basketball ism and he's working it and then the end of the game the buzzer goes off and he looks up at you with this big grin on his face and he invites you down on the court you and jack nicholson and you're gonna you're gonna walk out there onto the court and you just Walk right by him and go to the cheerleaders and congratulate them for a job well done. See, you saw it all happening. You saw that he controlled the court. You saw everything that happened and you just chose not to recognize anything he did. This is what Jesus went through. And see, it's not just an intellectual um, or this thing about knowledge or intellectualism that, that they didn't recognize Jesus with. Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Jesus was not recognized. Jesus was rejected by the heart of his creation. They saw him. They, under, they, they, they heard him. They saw the miracles and they chose to say, no, we ain't doing it. And for John, this is sin. See, we like to think sin is just a bunch of moral failures. We have this list of, of things we can't do. And if you get on that list, man, and you've, you're, you're sinning. No, no, no. Moral failure is the consequence of sin. Sin is not accepting Jesus for who he is. Sin is, is making something else in your life the most important thing and going after that. Look at Romans chapter 1. And the consequence of making something in your life other than Jesus the most important thing is moral failure. But the sin begins with rejecting who Jesus is. The sin begins with putting something else in the place of Jesus. But here's the good news. Yet to all who receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For those who do not reject him, for those who would accept him, whether it be Jew or Gentile, for those who believed in his name, very first century antiquity idea, for us, name is just name. My name's Dennis. So what? 
But back in, in, back in the first century and even before that, the name had, was a very, very big deal. Go to um, Psalm chapter 5. I'll give you a quick exa- two quick examples of this idea. Psalm chapter 5, uh, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. So here's this mention of name for that. Those who love your name will rejoice in you. Psalm 20. Let's go there quickly. Verse 1. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of God, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. See, there's this idea of name going on here. In the, in the, in the, the people of antiquity, the name meant everything about that person. What they liked, what they didn't like, how they acted, their status, their power, what authority they had, what were their characteristics. Everything was included. So when, they, when you heard the idea of in the name, everything of that person would come to mind. And that's what they're saying here, that when we believe, when we accept everything about who Jesus is, we have the right, we have been given the right to become children of God. We were given the right to become children of God because when that external illumination has been recognized and embraced and there's this internal spark in the soul, change takes place and you become something different. Corinthians tells us, 2 Corinthians tells us that if anyone comes to Jesus, that old is gone. And there's something new that takes place. Not only your position with God, but something deep inside begins to change. And now you have become God's beloved child and not just his beloved creation. And as a child of God, you are entitled to his inheritance. Not only life eternally, but life in abundance here. It's all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus puts on flesh and blood. Jesus puts on bones and comes into this world, and everything human has now, will now affect him. He will experience joy. He will experience sadness. He will get hungry. He will get tired. He will get frustrated. He will get angry. I bet you his feet hurt because he walked everywhere. I bet you after a couple days without a bath, Jesus had B.O. Now, we don't like to think about that, but he is human. Everything about him is fully human, and everything about him is fully God. 
he has decided to come into our world and take up residence. He will be tempted in every way, Hebrews tells us. That he will, he will be tempted with, with pride. He will be tempted with arrogance. He will be tempted with power. He will be tempted with anger. He will be tempted with sexual impurity. Yes, Jesus was tempted in all ways because he was fully human and still fully God. And so, in an unprecedented way, like never before in history, the people of the first century were able to look into the eyes of God. Moses asked God one time in Exodus, he said, hey God, listen, I want to see you. And God's like, well, you know, if you look right at me, you'll explode, so it's going to get messy, then I got to find somebody else to do what I got for you to do, so I'm going to put you in a rock, all right? And then, as I walk by, I'm going to cover you with my hands, and so he does this, and God, Moses is hanging out, and God walk, puts his hand over, and God walks by. And the text says that, that Moses got to see his back. But, but, but in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew language, it's more like Moses got to see where God was. He couldn't even look upon God's back. He just could see where God was. And now, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, first century people looked into the very face of God in an unprecedented way. And so we see Jesus living, working, crying, frustrated, doing miracles, speaking, teaching, loving, beaten down. Read the Gospel of Mark. Great beat downs in there. He's moving through his world his creation, and the very creation that he loves so much will ultimately reject him. The very creation he loves so much will ultimately kill him. And I find it very interesting that of all the characteristics that John can mention about God, the end of verse 14, the end of verse 14 he says this, that Jesus, full of grace, and truth. Out of God's fullness, we will experience grace and truth. John testified, verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. The, the writer of this gospel wants to be very clear that John the Baptist is not the Messiah, that Jesus is the chosen Messiah. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. Out of God's fullness, we have received grace. Philippians says this, that, that out of the riches of God, he will supply our needs. Not out of poverty, not out of lacking, but out of riches, out of fullness. And a better way to say that this idea of grace upon grace or grace that's already given is blessing upon blessing. Listen, God created everything. God created us. The very fact that we have breath in our lungs and thoughts in our mind and words in our mouth is God's blessing to his creation. And now he is going to take the blessings of his creation and bless them with the coming of Jesus Christ. Blessing upon blessing. A blessing that we really don't deserve. 
but because of grace, we have it. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay. The law is really considered the first five books of the Bible. Lots and lots of stuff in there. Like sleeper material. You ever want to fall asleep at night, bust out Leviticus, start about chapter 4. You're asleep by the middle of chapter 4. I guarantee it. It's really dry, dry reading. It's good stuff if you're a geek, but, but if you're not and you just want like, some, like a nugget of truth, stay out of Leviticus. Um, most, hopefully you've been there at least once. But anyway, I digress. So, so it's the first five books. But for us, let's just take, let's just take the Big Ten. All right, let's just think about the law as the Big Ten. The Ten Commandments. There's certain things in the Ten Commandments. Now, I know that, that this might sound like heresy, but I'm going to throw it out there. I believe that the Ten Commandments aren't really a list of commandments that we have to follow, that we, we, we should follow. Because we can't. There is no possible way that we can follow the Ten Commandments. God wasn't like, all right, um... Jesus, let's just throw out a, a, a quick, easy 10 and see how they do. And like 30 seconds later, he's like, again, with the term, the Hebrew term, Oy vey, what's wrong with these people? They can't even handle an easy 10. Like, you shouldn't kill people. Yeah, blew that, like right out of the box, man. Chapter, what, three, four of Genesis? Boom, we failed. Okay, well, don't steal. Mm, we can't even handle that one. Okay, all right, how, how about this one? Honor your father and mother. God has obviously never had teenagers. And, and, and so what was he thinking? Okay, he says like, okay, take one day out of the week, one day, and focus on me. Jesus obviously never played sports as a kid. There's way too much that we've got to do. We can't even tolerate partially God 101. I mean, that's basic stuff. Don't kill people. Don't steal. <clears throat> Honor your parents. <sighs> Take one day and think about God all day. <sighs> we can't even handle that. See, the Ten Commandments are to show us our need of God's grace. The Ten Commandments say, man, <laughs> you can't do it, can you? You need me, not me, but God. The Ten Commandments point out our very weakness. That we can't even be amateurs in spirituality without the grace of Jesus Christ. God's grace says this. You can't do it yourself. I'm going to handle it for you. I'm going to take care of it for you. I'm going to be, I'm going to be responsible for your shortcomings. I want to talk about grace for a few minutes, and, uh, and then we'll be done. We can eat. Two things about grace. Number one, for those who follow Jesus Christ, grace says you are forgiven completely right now. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to, to, to study harder. You don't have to read more of the Bible you don't even have to go to church. I would recommend coming to church. But I mean, really, in the context of your forgiveness, grace says you are forgiven right now, completely. You cannot earn it. You cannot do anything for more of it. 
Not some future version of you, not the better version of you, not the I've got it together version of you, not the I'm not sinning anymore version of you, that God has forgiven you through Jesus Christ right now perfectly. And what I find very interesting is that we as Christians continually strive and work for something that we already have completely. We try so hard to be good. We try so hard to do the right things. And I think we should be good and do the right things. But we try so hard and and we feel that, that God is just always ticked off at us. Through Christ, you are forgiven perfectly right now, this very day. We deserve condemnation, every one of us. Do you understand that Mother Teresa deserves the same fate as Jeffrey Dahmer? Remember Jeffrey Dahmer? He ate people. Okay? Mother Teresa, like, saint, they both deserve the same fate. But grace says, no, no. Through Christ, you are forgiven perfectly right now. Jesus took up residence here on this earth to show us the grace of God. Jesus didn't go to people and say, you idiots, what is the matter with you? You've blown it again. You know what? I can't even look at you anymore. I don't even want to see you. Get out of my sight. Jesus never said that to people. Instead, he came alongside them and said, well, that, you know what? That's, that's probably not the best way to do it. Man, just, just stop doing that and, 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 and try this. Don't do that anymore. I'll forgive you for that. Don't worry about that. I got that covered. Just live, live in this harmony. Jesus loved people into God's kingdom. The people, he was, the people he called an idiot were the religious people who would just heap rules and rules upon people and crush them. People who are honestly looking for God and trying to figure it all out. The religious people would just be like, you're, you're not doing it right. You got to get all these things in order. And Jesus was brutal to those people. But to those honestly looking, he said, Man, don't do it that way. Try this. That's the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Stop walking around like God is always mad at you. It's not. You are his beloved child. And with that comes his inheritance. This is the amazing side of grace. This is the grace that preaches well. This is the grace that fills the joy box at the end of the day. This is the grace that people are just like, Yahoo, I feel good. But let me tell you, real grace, point number two. Wow, this is like two weeks in a row. I did like points, huh? I feel so pastoral. I'm sorry. Um, so, so point number two, real grace is a threat. Real grace is is a threat. See, the danger is this. You get hold of this thing called grace and you get to do anything you want to do. Listen, I got the grace of God and I can do anything that I want to do and Jesus is going to forgive me, but grace would never have that attitude. If you have that attitude, then grace hasn't taken hold in your soul because real grace is a threat. And if you don't have the grace of God in your heart, in your soul, I would argue that you should check where you are in relation to your salvation with God. 
It's harsh words, I know. This ain't no joke. This is life and death. Grace is a threat. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That means that if the attitude was, listen, if I can earn my salvation, if I can earn my forgiveness, if I can do a certain amount of things, if I can be morally correct, if I can be ethically correct, if I can be good enough, then I earn my salvation. That at some point, I can go to God and say, God, I have some rights and I want what's coming to me. I have done all of these things. I have followed all the rules. I have arrived. I have achieved. Now give me what I have coming. See, That's not the way it works. Let alone, if that were the case, you can go to somebody else. Nah, 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 I mean, you're not. That's not the way it works. Grace is given in spite of us. Grace is given through Christ. Our forgiveness comes through Jesus. You can't do anything to get more of it. You can't do anything to get less of it. You just have to put your faith in that name. Recognize the true light. Take the the external acceptance of the light and let it create an internal illumination in your soul and allow grace to come and find its home in you. There is nothing that we can ask of God and everything that he demand, can demand from us. There is nothing that we have over God, and yet he can ask us everything. Grace received and embraced should create in us a life that we would live graciously towards everyone. Unmerited favor. We've received it, and now the grace that's taken root in us, we should now give it. Tim Keller um, great book, um, The Reason for God. Um, I recommend um, reading it. It's an amazing book. He would say that this idea of the threat of grace is the greatest paradox of all. That the most liberating act of free, unconditional grace demands that those who receive it give up control of their very life. And I would say that control of our life is a joke anyway because we're all controlled by something. We think we have control, but whatever we make our God in our life actually controls us. And if we give control over to anything else but God, then I would say that 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 thing will, will just squash us. That thing will just oppress us. But this is the very threat of grace, that we would live for something much bigger than ourselves, that we would open our life and live for God. The threat of grace says that we are not going to do what we want to do. We're not going to do anything that we want to do. That we are going to press in hard to Christ. You see, that's where grace gets messy. That's, we, we like the forgiveness side of it, right? Oh, I feel good now. Mm-hmm. And then we walk over here and say, wait a minute, there's a submission side of grace? I mean, I have to actually do what God wants me to do. That's not fair. But that's the grace of God. 
There's no other real faith tradition that can say, that, that, can say um, that, that embraces this idea of grace. Listen, most of the other faith traditions, they come with just amazing teachers, just, just very profound and, and, and lots of wisdom. And you can't argue with that. You read these writings of some of these great other philosophers and other faiths. I mean, there's, just, there's a lot of very interesting stuff. But you see, they've come as teachers. They have come to say, listen, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you get these things right, you can experience the divine. Jesus comes as a savior and he says, I am the divine. And because you can't do anything, I have come to you. Do you see the difference? Grace is forgiveness. Grace is submission. So how well are you living in the grace of God? Are you just one-sided and all hunky-dory with the forgiveness piece? And you failed in the submission, the greatest paradox of all. It doesn't make sense. This is what James talks about, that, 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 that if, there's no, if there's no fruit with, with faith and faith is dead and all that stuff, it's the internal change that takes place of the grace of God and the truth of who Jesus is. Let's pray. God, I don't get this sometimes. It's hard to understand. But God, it's by faith that I will engage Jesus as the truth. It's by faith that I will engage grace given upon grace. It's by faith that I want to know how it is you have called me to live my life. And it's by faith that I will press in and follow. God, I want to thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for truth. Thank you for grace. And now, empower us to live it. Amen.